Salutations and welcome to another episode of The Native Immigrants. I'm your host, Swami Barakas, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Jojo underscore B. What's going on, Jojo B? Hi. How's it going? Yeah, all right. Just dancing to the music in my head. The voices in your head, the oh, inner demons. Like funky disco going on in my head. That secret, silent killer that's inside there lurking away in the midst. Watch your back, innit? Okay, I'm low-key worried. <laughs> um, but it's okay. You know what? I don't even mind that so much because I have backup. Have you? I have backup for today's show. And who? Tell me. Pray tell. Who is this backup well, that you can rely on that I cannot defeat? <laughs> yeah. Well, Thanos is not joining us on this show, uh, unfortunately. But for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, we've been talking about how about we get some guests on our shows now? Why don't we get some guests on? Who should we get? Should we get some guests on our show? Do you think people would want to listen to anyone else apart from us on the show? Realize very quickly people would love to listen to other people aside of us, which is... Probably more so, to be fair. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, we thought, right, I think because this is the time now, and because now there's an abundance of people that are doing fuck all currently, we've decided to get some guests on this show. And today's guest is a very special guest. For me, anyway. He's special for me as well. All right, okay. But you know, because he's Gujarati and you know how much you hate Gujaratis. I don't hate and them. So, I'm married one. Well, my son is half a one. And my extended family... Oh, Gujarati. We used to get like, there's t you know, T-shirts made. You know, my husband's a Gujarati. I'm not a racist or something. You know, like one of them. You're ones. not a racist. And then put like, put like, a, put like a little little dukra on the side. You know, Gujaratis like, are not edge. a race. Well, we're, we're a people. Yeah. We're very proud people. Yeah, I know. And one of its proudest sons is on the show with us today. In the second half of the show, we are going to be joined by Nikesh Shukla. Big up Nika Shukla. If you don't know who that is. He's an author extraordinaire. Yes. Uh, and he is the man behind The Good Immigrant. Um, he basically put together all those essays from some of the best writers, BAME authors across the UK. Not only that, though. He's done a whole ton of fiction. Yes, as well. The one um, who wrote Destiny. The, the Boxer. Boxer. Recently. Uh, Coconut Unlimited. Yes. Um, run right. There's a number of great, great fictional work out there by Nikesh Shukla. And if you don't know who he is, go out and find some of his books and you'll get a chance to find out a little bit more about the man himself. But if you don't have time between now and the end of this podcast to do that, listen to this podcast because you will hear all about Nikesh Shukla and his life and find out a little bit more about the person behind the pen. But before we get to Nikesh Bhai in the second half, Jojo B has a weekly rant to get off her chest. So I'm giving her this opportunity to lay siege on something that's riled her up the wrong way. So now we weren't really not going to talk about this because it's not necessarily a British Asian thing to talk about. But because I have been ranting at him for so for the last couple of days mm. um, uh, he's like just put it on the podcast just talk about it there so that I don't have to keep listening to it and everybody else can listen to it instead so here I am talking about Never Have I Ever on Netflix this is the new 
Mindy Kaling series. Mm -hmm. And it is about a young 15-year-old girl in America called Devi. And she is a Tamil girl and she's growing up and she's going to high school. And um, she's just experienced a bereavement. Mm -hmm. Her father has just died. Uh, is this a spoiler? No. Or are we, are we, is this something people should know about? I don't think it's a spoiler. It's, it kind of happens in the first episode, so it's not like a... It's like a setup. Right, okay. Um, and it's just how she copes with that and all the trials and tribulations of being a 15-year-old girl in high school, you know, boys you fancy. Yeah, and, you know, boys you fancy and issues with your mom and family and all that stuff. And... It's proved to be quite controversial. I was really looking forward to this series and I watched it and really enjoyed it. But it is proven on Twitter, like everything on Twitter, because nobody can just sit back and enjoy something. There has to be an argument. On Twitter, there's been arguments about, you know, how representative it is, how it's playing into stereotypes. And some people believe in that it's not playing into stereotypes and all of that kind of stuff. And just like, you know, there's not enough Asians in it. There's too many Asians in it. <laughs> Like, and I just think that I just got very, very passionate about the fact that actually this is the first time that there is a show aimed at South Asian girls who are teenagers representing what life is like for them. We are not all studying really hard and not having any other life. We are not all housebound and not having to having any other life. Devi experiences all of the restrictions that an Asian girl is supposed to to face but also challenges the, all of those things. She challenges all of the, the stereotypes, all of the women in it. And it's a very strong female cast, actually, out of the Asian women. And in generally, actually, most of the cast is female. Mm. And they're all very, very strong characters. It's the, the kind of adversity that they face within their lives and the barriers that they have to break down. Yeah. And some of which are obviously broken down and some of which actually are just kind of casually nodded to. And they're just doing stuff that actually is not the norm for, for instance, what a widow would do. Hmm. It's a Tamil family. So there's a lot of references to Tamil culture. Right. But there's, there's loads of things that as a Punjabi I could relate to. So they, you know, they talk in English at home, uh, but they throw in the odd Tamil word. Right. The way that we do, you know, we when we talk to our parents, we talk to them in English, we throw in the odd Punjabi word or you throw in the odd Gujarati word, mm. you know, like it's things like that, that actually on the outside, if it had been a white writer or a white producer, they probably wouldn't have acknowledged those things. It would have just, it would have just not been a thing for them. But with a writer and a producer who come from those backgrounds they can kind of just do it and it's just part of and i think think actually people are taking it for granted that those things are in there because they're used to it in their day-to-day -day lives but when you take a step back we are not used to those things on tv mm. we don't get to see those things on tv the fact that devi is actually a darker skinned girl right, is yeah. not something that you would you would see normally you know, Mindy Kaling is not fair skinned. She's the darker skinned lady herself. Mm. And so she's trying to make sure that actually this isn't about a North Indian family like you would normally see or expect. This is about a South Indian family. Mm. They do South Indian things. They eat South Indian food. You know, their culture is represented. I think it's just a really important, important program. So, okay, so what is, is the 
what's the issue then? What's the what's the controversy? What what is it, what is the problem with it that people are having an issue with? So one of the things that I saw was there's a reference in a dream sequence to Priyanka Chopra. So this so Devi's in love with this guy right. at, at school who is um he's half Japanese and half white. Right. He makes in this in this dream sequence she's being seduced by him. Right. And he says to her, "Oh, you're." Um, I can't remember if he says you're more beautiful or just as beautiful as Priyanka Chopra. Okay. And so now, obviously, we all know that Priyanka Chopra is slightly controversial because, you know, she said some problematic things right. online. Um, and a lot of people have an issue with her. And they've said, oh, well, there are other Asian women that she could have been like. Why does it have to be Priyanka Chopra? Now, if you have to remember, not only is the guy who's saying it not of a South Asian background, and mm. so shouldn't be expected to know who Deepika Padukone is yeah. or or any of the other actresses. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and yeah, exactly. None of, why would he know Bollywood? He just knows Priyanka Chopra because she is in the spotlight in yeah, America. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, that. and also like this is a Netflix show at the end of the day. It has to be accessible to more than just us. So if there's a reference to Priyanka Chopra, yes, we know her. But also a, ma- a wider mainstream audience knows her as well. Yeah, but I think yeah. the main thing is is that actually that character wouldn't have known any other Bollywood actress mm. necessarily. So that reference, it stands. Yeah. But people are taking it out of context because people are not watching it. They're right. refusing to watch it because they have their backs up without actually understanding what the program is about. Right. And also, this is a young adult program. This is not aimed at a nearly 40-year-old woman like me. Mm. You know, this is aimed at youngins. And so... Actually, you need to take that into context as well. And also, I really, 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 really related to her as as me as a teenager. And my relationship to my mum was really similar to what Devi is like with her mum. The clashes that they have, the things that she says. I think actually some of them I've said word word for word to my mum in the past. And I would never be that disrespectful now. But as a teenager, I was a little shit. You know, the things I was quite well behaved and I, you know, I was a goody two shoes in the sense that I was academic and stuff, just like Davy. But I also had my anger issues just like Davy does. Right. Yeah. And my mom had her kind of like, I don't know what to do with this girl. How is she my daughter kind of moments, just like Davy's mom does. Right. So I think it's a really, really accurate representation of many people's relationships with their with their mothers many girls' relationships and specifically with their mothers. Right. And also... Fucking hell. <laughs> also, there's been some controversy about how she fancies a white... It's like, why did it have to be a non-South Asian guy that she's in love with? Right? Right. But why not? No, exactly. If that's, she that's lives in an area where there's not a, a whole load of South Asians there, and actually it's quite a mixed group like a quite a mixed high school you just fancy the hottest guy in the school like i did and the hottest guy in my school was usually white yeah, yeah. you know so why would I, I in my own experience i fancied the white boys at school because there was more of them and they were the hot ones right and so she's just like that she just fancies the guy who's the most popular who's the most you know he's really sporty and in the way he's a he, jock. basically yeah and I, I just don't understand. I think it would have been really realistic for her to be like, no, I don't fancy him, even though the whole of, I mean, in the show, they say like the whole of California fancies him, right? So why wouldn't she? 
Mm, just be yeah, really in a realistic. Yeah. She's like, no, I don't, I don't fancy him at all. I want, you know, Prakash from down the road. Like, why, why? There is no Prakash down the road. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, it's. I guess I, I, I totally understand that. Um, you know, I, it's another one of these things when it comes to things happening within our community. You know, it's about supporting as many projects that are out there that are good written projects, um, good acting, and you know, as a series like this, which is funny, you know our community should be out to support it but yet again there's always uh, issues that people find with it or nitpick things within it and just find ways to to bring it down collectively i feel and there's um, been a lot of hate for mindy kaling herself which i still i don't understand she is a south asian woman who's made it to very very like high level in yeah so it's Preeti Patel so no 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 but she's made it in hollywood but she's not doing what Preeti Patel does where she's like just fucking Trops the ladder off and tries not to let anybody else up with her. Yeah. She is actually trying to bring people up with her. She, when she did the casting for this, I saw her post, original, mm. her original post, where she said, "I'm just looking for an Asian girl." She didn't look for an actress. This girl de- who plays Devi was not an actress before. She's never done anything else before. Yeah. She just responded to the uh, request for um, videos to come through. So she sent send me a tape of you doing your audition. Yeah, and she did. She held auditions like that, and then called back the people that she liked the best and then this girl got it so i just think like she's doing her best to make sure that there's representation she fought really hard to be a writer on the office and get her her voice heard when she was working on the office as one of the staff writers Mm. and she has done the same thing all the way through where she's just tried to make sure that there is representation wherever she can yeah and so i don't see the problem with her and also She's on that list of people I want to be friends with. So I love Mindy Kaling. <laughs> okay. Well, glad you got all that out into the open, Jojo B. Um, but yeah, you know, we, we've spoken previously on, our, I think it was our second show about Asians and British pop culture and how we need to look at what's happening in the States because it feels like there is more opportunities for writers out there and they are opening up more avenues for, you know, good content to be out there on, on the mainstream wider platforms. And so, you know, a show like this, it, it does need the support of our, our people and our collective community if it's a really good, good, great show. But so far, it's been getting great reviews from a number of people. And I just wish our community can just get behind it as well. But And one last thing. It does not shy away from the fact that South Asian women are sexual beings who have wants and needs. And no one is slut-shamed for the way that they act on the relationships that they have. And the fact that she wants to have sex with somebody who's in her high school is not shied away from. Because at the end of the day, yes... We, as Asian girls, when we're teenagers, might be under some restriction from our families. doesn't mean that we don't have those feelings and those desires. Mm. And that's not shied away from. And I think that's also a really important thing for young South Asian women to see, young South Asian girls to see. Well, you heard it here first. It's currently on Netflix. I suggest you check it out and then let us know your thoughts. Does Jojo B's words have any merit to them? Or is she talking complete bollocks? Piss off. They do have merit. And they, and, but I will say that this is not going to, it's not the kind of show that's going to change your life. So don't expect it to change your life, but just appreciate the fact that it's out there. Yes, exactly. We want representation. We need representation. Here is some representation on TV with just Asians being normal. Let's all try to check it out and get behind it, please. Anyway, 
We're back on the other side. We are joined by our special guest, Mr. Nikesh Shukla. See you on the other side, people. Welcome back to the second half of the Native Immigrants. I'm Swami Barakas. And I'm Jojo B. And you know how people have been clamoring at us to try to get some guests on the show because they're sick of hearing just the two of us talk bollocks for an hour every week. I find that really offensive, but yes. Yeah, thanks a lot. Cheers, listeners. That's, that's much love. Um, but we have duly noted this. And because it is the lockdown season and everyone is stuck at home with nothing to do, it's been easier to get people on the show now, Yay. Which, which is amazing. Um, and this guest for today's show is someone who's actually been a supporter since day one of our podcast. Thanks. Thank you very much. Um, and we've been trying to get him on the show uh, for the longest amount of time. But we haven't managed it mainly because of us. Yes. Yeah. I will, I'll put the blame firmly in our direction. But... Where there's a will, there's a way. And if there's any positives to come out of the coronavirus, it's that we've managed to get <laughs> him on the show, which is an amazing look. Welcome to the show, Nikesh Shukla. Hi, guys. How's it going? <laughs> yeah. I, I think, I feel, should we, did, did that deserve like a bigger, should, would you have done a much bigger like intro for him? <laughs> like a drum roll and some like Hi. fireworks and stuff. Yeah, like a doll. Should I should I have been more enthusiastic? But yes, welcome. Hey, how's it going? Everything is really, really well. So, okay, so there are going to be a number of people who do listen to this right now that won't know who you are. So in one word, who is Nika Shukla? Pissed off that you haven't oh. read my books yet. Wow, that's, that's, that's not than, one word. That's, that's more than one word. You failed already from the offset. Um, but we'll let you off. Uh, actually, there was there was there was a dash between each word, so you know. Ah, okay. Look at this smart author man. I mean, you could, you, I, if I if I'd said it quick enough, it could have sounded like one word. Um, you should have hashtag guess, at the front of writer. it. Yeah, you should have hashtag it at the front. Yeah, writer extraordinaire. But you know what? Okay, so you know, last week, thank you so much for sending us a message of support uh, for our fiftieth show. That was hugely appreciated. Um. But he sent this through to me on WhatsApp. And so this came up on my WhatsApp, like on my chats. But the name that he was under was Yamboy. <laughs> now, there'll be like 99.5% of our current listenership who won't have a clue what that's all about. And the half percent that do is just me and you re-listening to the show to make sure the quality's okay. <laughs> So for people who don't know what a Yamboy is, Nika Shukla, care to share? Uh, a Yamboy is a very, very mediocre rapper that you will never have what? heard of from 2003, 2004. And thank the stars, he hung up his microphone and just decided to write a book instead because he wasn't very good. Well, okay, I'll, 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 yeah, I'll, I'll yam, take it. Yam, 
I want to take a little bit of offense to that because Swami Barakas doesn't jump on tunes with mediocre rappers. There was a song. There is a song. With the both of you on it. There is a song with Yamboy and Swami Barakas. No. We did. Yeah, you actually, it was actually put out on MySpace. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, it was yeah. sort of like a, a climate changey track, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, it was, was called, sort of it was called music, stuff, music for we? climate change or something. I remember, I remember when you, yeah, I remember when you came to came round to record it. You just rocked up at my house in Brixton. You were done in like half an hour, and then left, and there was like no smoke. <laughs> yeah, nice. And I was like, "Wow, this guy, so this guy is so cool. This motorbike is so cool." <laughs> yeah. He says he doesn't want a cup of tea. He does. He's brought his own water. He just wants to get it done, get back in his car, and yeah. go back to West yeah. London. Yeah, I was, I was, on, I was on obviously like enemy territory there. You know, when you go to another, part, another <laughs> postcode in London and stuff, you, know, you never know how you, you might just get clapped on the streets. And so, I was very much of that. Let me just get in there quickly, do my verse, one take, leave, um, and then and then hope for the best. Um, but yeah, it, it kind of it, it was out on my spot. I don't, I don't have a copy of it even. So. What? I, I I can't find it anywhere. I was like, before the show. I was like, ah, oh, I remember that track that I did with Nikesh like at least fifteen years ago, and I was trying to find it. Literally nowhere on my hard drive. I can't believe I've never heard this track. I need to hear it, oh, bruv. I, it's it's lost in the annals of time. No. Unless unless uh, Nikesh Bai, <laughs> look through your many you know hard what? drives. I'm pretty sure I, I could. I'm pretty sure I could find it on a whole. <gasps> wow. Please. Wow. And you know what? It's obviously really topical for right now because we talked about climate. We were already ahead of our time. 15 years ago, we were talking about but climate change. But do you know what's, do you know what's really funny, though? It was um, about two or three months ago, I think it was around Christmas, I went to my, I went around my boy's house um, for just for, for dinner. And um, so me, me and these two other guys, we used to be in a, a little rap crew to get together. But and, they, you know, they're still, they're still my really close friends. And Tom, Miss, uh, he used to be called VK. He made a record in like I think two thousand four called the Mister V EP. And um, he he was he was basically he had brought brought round his, his new girlfriend to kind of introduce to his brother and uh, to me. And we were all sitting there eating, and his brother, in an effort to embarrass him, put on a track wow. that we'd done together. And my takeaway from it was. God, you sounded terrible, man. What was wrong with you? Why did you commit this to record? Like, my voice was higher. I was... But the thing that I didn't realise when I was rapping was how... And I'm, you know, I'm saying this on a podcast where you can hear how mumbly my mm. voice is. I was a really mumbly rapper. But isn't that really <laughs> cool now? Just listening back to... And it, and it was, it was weird because around the same time, I was chatting to our friend Riz, Riz Ahmed, uh, and we were talking about post nine eleven blues and when it came out, and we was and we were listening to it, and I'd forgotten like his voice has gotten deeper mm. as well. And I know I know I'm talking about the difference between like our early twenties or mid twenties and like our late thirties, early forties and stuff. But my voice sounded so yeah, different. Yeah, I think it's just it's... and but the but the thing that the, the thing that's interesting about you, I know you're like what a year year older than me or something, but your voice, your you've always had that kind of very um you've always had you've your voice hasn't changed and you still have like the gravitas that you you had back in the the sort of the early to mid noughties mm. whereas my voice has completely changed it sounds really weird I, i'm sure you listen back to stuff that you were doing back then you're like damn i sound really different but i, I to me you just sound like you just have the swami brackers 
noise. I think, think that the noise. No. I think I think the the voice has pretty much stayed the same in terms of like what I do on the beat has very much changed. Um, you know, because like I listen back on some of the stuff I did in those early part of the noughties and to the mid noughties, and I was like, shit. I like um, you just know you're so much better now than you were back then, and what you could have done to those beats rather than what you actually did put out at the time. But it's all evolution, really. Um, and so uh, if there was to be a Nika Shukla track. And now the fact that you did sound quite mumbly then, as, and as Jojo B just said, this is the era of mumble rap. Could we see <laughs> a mumbly Nikesh Shukla back on wax? You know what? I, I probably even shouldn't be naming him by name. Um, but last year, I was talking to my friend Sarathi Korva, who's an amazing producer, amazing drummer, amazing musician, about wanting to get back on the mic. And he was like, yeah, yeah, I can sort of see you sort of doing like a like a prose poem, like a spoken word piece over one of my beats and we can make it quite loose. And, you know, he's he's really, he's a real jazz producer. And so I was like, okay, fuck it. Let's go back. Sorry for swearing. Okay, screw it. Uh, damn it. Let's go back into this. Let's go back into the studio. So I went around to the studio, but like just because the beat he'd given me was in 4-4, I just slipped back into rapping. And I ended up recording this verse on the beat last year. And like, he then went off on tour. I didn't hear from him for ages. And then he eventually emailed me. and was like, yeah, bro, it doesn't sound right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> Do you want to re it? And maybe just not worry Shots about being fired. on the beat and maybe just being a bit looser with it. And, and then uh, his sort of, his, uh, touring kind of morphed into lockdown and so we haven't been able to go back into the studio to re-record mm. it but it basically I felt my immediate reaction to that email was kill me kill hello, me hello darkness my <laughs> old friend <laughs> um, but I but then he he sent me so I could kind of hear what he was saying and he was right he was right like I was basically trying yeah. too hard uh, I was trying too hard to to be like mid-90s um, rapper, like influenced by mid nineties rapper. <laughs> oh yeah, rapper. yeah. Trying to be one of the Fushnickens. <laughs> if only more like one of the 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 less good one from Black Sheep. Oh wow. <laughs> <laughs> but let's go on to Nikesh Shukla, the person. Okay. <laughs> I love let's your go segues. into. Let's take let's take a journey into Nikesh Shukla the person. Yeah, like, let's let's, yeah, let's penetrate Nikesh Shukla. <laughs> let's Why do I have to be the one who asks enter, these penetrating questions? Let's enter. Let's enter Nikesh Shukla. Um, this is a family podcast. No, it's not. It's really it's, not. So swear all you want. By the way, started, it started as a family podcast. It never started. We started swearing at each other from a, from know, the beginning. Know, this I is know. just how we are. So yeah, use all the language that you want to use. So as you know, we are a British Asian podcast, and so it would be amiss of us to not talk about all things British Asian with you because you are of the British Asian persuasion. What? <laughs> I know. I know. I just look in a mirror every now and again. But what does it mean to you? What does what does being British Asian mean to you? Is it your just your ethnicity, or is it like more for you? Is it is it your cultural background? What 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 does it mean to Nikesh Shukla to be British Asian? You know, it's it's funny. I think it's an that's feeling is in a real in real flux at the moment because, I you know I I did a book called The Good Immigrant about four years ago that kind of blew up and it kind of put me. At 
in a certain space when it came to having like public conversations about race and immigration and stuff. And I quickly realized that the term British Asian is useless. You know, it's something that we all kind of hold on to as uh, for nostalgic reasons, but I just, I'm constantly, re- like, so doing The Good Immigrant, basically there were, there were three essays from three writers who are from the East Asian, Southeast Asian diaspora talking about how when it comes to conversations around race, they are forgotten about. Hmm. And it's funny, like you go to America and you talk, you say Asian American and people automatically think someone from, you know, East Asia or Southeast Asia. But you come to the UK and you say British Asian and you think of someone from South Asia. And and for me, there's like, I, it just becomes more and more apparent the more we have these conversations about inter, inter-race race chat that we let you know as as we kind of draw um lines around who we are and we try and build solidarity you know that i feel like the term british asian often forgets people who are from southeast asia and east asia and that for me is a problem like it's a problem for me that the asian network exists and it doesn't have like Mm -hmm. a k-pop show or a j-pop show or or like a show that showcases music from china for example like we are we in the uk we dominate the conversation when it comes to british asian and and i think that's a thing that we need to talk about because you know uh you know, we are, if we are to stand, if we are to be anti-racist and stand in solidarity with people um, who are not white and who are suffering at the hands of white supremacy, like, we can't exclude people from the conversation. And I feel like we, like the term British Asian can do that sometimes. But is that more, Sorry, is that, that was controversial. <laughs> no, 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 because I, 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 I agree with you, but is that more of our mentalities and not in terms of us particularly, but our community mentality that needs to change in terms of not embracing Southeast Asians. Because when I when I talk about British Asians, I, I'm no different to someone that's from, you know, a Chinese background or a Japanese background. That's still British Asian to me. But is yeah, that, do you feel that's more of a, our community that needs to have that thought process changed? I've- I think so. And, and, you know, the thing is, I think that your podcast has been really interesting in, um, and platforms like Burn Rodney have also been really interesting in sort of trying to push forward certain conversations that our community as British South Asians, we have just avoided having for a really long time. Mm. You know, when it comes to LGBTQIA plus issues or where it comes to class issues or where it comes to anti-blackness or where it comes to how we can sometimes be excluding in 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 conversations you know and i think that i think more people need to be having those conversations i'm really glad that there are spaces out there that are having them because they're really vital um so for me what i want to get to is a, a bulletproof sense of solidarity and in order for us to have that sort of bulletproof sense of solidarity for for us all to kind of get behind this feeling of um this movement of wanting to be anti-racist and push forward an anti-racist agenda we, you know i want to kind of make sure that there are no barriers in place and i worry sometimes that if you said to the average person on the street who do you picture when you picture British Asian? They'll talk about Sanjay and Gita. Mm, yeah. <laughs> They'll automatically think of brown people and not necessarily people who are East Asian or Southeast Asian. And, you know, like, I'm really, really proud to have kind of 
help to add to the canon of that literature by having those essays in The Good Immigrant, but I feel like I'd love to see more stuff, if mm. that makes sense. Absolutely. No, wholeheartedly agree with you. Um, that's one good thing about you know the Asia House Literature Festival. It's open to all of Asia, um, and then that you've participated in the last couple of years as well. Um, yeah, it just needs to have a more of a, a, a collective embracing in terms of all of our cultures. Um, and I will ensure to do more from our part to you know embrace uh, what's happening in Southeast Asia ourselves. Um, well, it's, in it's interesting. You're already doing more than Asian Network, but you know, <laughs> yeah, well, that's. <laughs> Well, like I said, <laughs> our conversations go. are the conversations that literally, legitimately, there's very few platforms that do them without any filters. And so if we can play a small part into, you know, enabling change or enabling progression, at least, then that's a step in the right direction. And I think we've spoken as well about the term British Asian being kind of being redundant these days because everybody wants to segregate, even within the South Asian communities. Nobody wants to be known as... Asian anymore everyone wants to be either Indian or they're kind of even even more kind of segregated in terms of their like subdivision so they're like Gujarati or Punjabi but we're not going to mix we're not like that other person we're not like that other group because for whatever reason they've got an issue with that group you know and that's why you have people say no I'm Hindu I'm, I'm not Muslim or and because there has been so much kind of negative press about certain groups that sit within the South Asian umbrella um yeah, and I definitely. guess I guess that's going to be so I was going to say, I, was going to, I guess it's even more so now because of the pandemic and all of this people, you know, there's been this stuff on on Twitter about wanting to call it the Chinese disease or, or you know, whatever. So like, there's going to be even more of a problem with having an umbrella term such as British Asian that embraces everybody when there's even more reasons for people to be racist these days. You think? Yeah, 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 totally. Like, it's interesting because like when I was growing up, like we wore that badge of british asian with pride but then i remember like there being a lot of animosity towards like the sri lankan community in northwest london where we were growing up and like i never understood why because they were us you know and i think what's what i find interesting so like <clears throat> you know i am 40 this year so i'm i'm basically <laughs> in an in-between age between like the activists of the 70s and 80s and 90s and um I get, you know, I and I use this to, tone term knowing it's loaded, like millennial, millennial, millennials. <clears throat> and I understand that, like, when I was, like, 15, 16, 17, there were, the term political blackness was still being used. And I, but at the same time, I can see now why young black people are not interested in political blackness, but because they're like, your communities are anti-black, so you, and it, yeah. you can't yeah. say that we're all standing together under this umbrella term of politically black when we, when you are not addressing issues in your own community, and, and I and I totally get that. It it it's, it pains me to kind of admit that that we're still there, you know. Yeah. And but then I talk to activists um, from like from the seventies and eighties and nineties. I talk to them, and they're they're like it fills them with pain because they're like what what have we been fighting for that we're kind of getting further and further away from a sense of solidarity and like and it's the same thing with like wanting to d differentiate people wanting to say oh i'm hindu or i'm gujarati or i'm this or i'm that or like if even if they want to 
go to that weird place of like trying to instigate some sort of caste system bullshit mm. in the UK. Um, and and a lot of it is because as well as anti-blackness in our communities, there's a lot of anti-Muslimness in our communities as well. And that needs to be addressed. And so you can see when people are wanting to kind of say that they're brown, but they're not they're not that type of brown. That what they're really saying is like, <clears throat> I'm I'm not Muslim. And I find that really fucked up actually and you know like it's interesting been watching so there's two things sorry i know i'm talking a lot but like there's two things i've noticed that have been quite interesting in this pandemic one has been like the kind of the sexualization of dishy rishi sunak as like Mm -hmm. the palatable fit brown because he's sort of harmless and sort of geeky and that kind of within within the scope of how that makes him relatable to middle-class white women who are the ones who are calling him dishy rishi Mm. um you know, and that kind of says a lot about how we're viewed as a community. But also the other thing is like, people are very, very quick to say about the coronavirus that it doesn't discriminate. And of course it doesn't discriminate. Panda, like a virus cannot discriminate. It's not sentient. Like discrimination is a sentient choice. Um, Mm. But the virus can adversely affect people from certain socioeconomic backgrounds because of pre-existing discrimination. And that's why you're finding we're finding that it's affecting BAME communities and BAME communities from working class backgrounds as well is because and it's not because like they're prone to obesity or like oh they all just crowd into their own houses it's Mm. because of like how society has set us up to kind of be at the bottom of the fucking pyramid of the pyramid scheme that is British meritocracy and that that sort of means that like people for like British Asians, black people, black British people, they are much more likely to be affected by coronavirus because of pre-existing discrimination and inequality. So the virus doesn't discriminate, but it is going to fester where people discriminate. And that's the thing that we need to talk about. Well, you've basically answered all the subsequent 10 questions in that, in that one answer. <laughs> Let, which let's is talk amazing. about rapping stuff. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, it's a sign of a good guest. A sign of a great guest. Um, but let's let's go back to something that you that was quite interesting you were talking about, about growing up in Northwest London during the 80s and 90s, um, especially as an Asian youth. These are predominantly Asian areas as well. Um, yeah. How Were they particularly Asian back then? Yeah, because I think... I might be getting this wrong, but I think like certain labour offices were in Wembley and in Tooting, which is why you have quite a few Asians. At, or maybe they were in Hounslow. I can't quite remember. But basically you can kind of monitor, you can kind of work out where people from certain um, communities abroad migrated to because of where the labour offices, like the local labour offices that they were yeah. given when they left, because that's where they turned up looking for work. So that's what, like, the Labour office for a lot of Black Caribbean people would have been in Brixton, which is why they moved to Brixton, because it's closer to where they would go and, like, look for work. Right, yeah. So, and I think it, I think it's that, it's either, like, it's definitely tooting, and it's either, like, Hounslow or Wembley, where I think there was a Labour office. I might have completely got that wrong, so please correct me if I've got that wrong, but that's what someone told me a while, about, a while back. No, it makes sense. I think I think for everyone else in that part of West London, it's just because... Heathrow, everyone sat down. What's the closest town to it? Oh, look, here's, here's a place called Hounslow. Here's a place called Southall. Here's a place called Hayes. Here's a place called Harlington. Everyone just congregated at the closest vicinity um, as soon as they stepped off the airports, I feel like. Um, but Harrow, during the 80s and 90s, um, you know, a lot has changed in that time from, um, from that point till now. 
um, how different was it for you growing up um, to what it is now when every time you visit back here? You know, it's it's funny because you guys live pretty much where I grew up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, not 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 to make that hot on the internet or anything. I <laughs> drop the location, but yeah, no pictures, um, no comments. It's it's funny going back because like it automatically. Have you ever like found a really old pair of trainers that you just stopped wearing because you were like, I wore them two years straight without any fail, and you're like, oh, they'll be uncomfortable. And then you finally put them on, and you're like, damn, this is what comfort mm. used to feel like. That's what feeling like. That's what Harrow feels like. Whenever whenever I go past Northwick Park on the Metropolitan Line where I was born. I, I, something relaxes in me and I like, I immediately need to go to the toilet. Um, no, something relaxes in me and I'm like, ah, I'm home, you know? And I'm kind of, I'm kind of nostalgic for Harrow of the nineties. And so whenever I do go out, like, cause you know, when I go and visit my family, I don't go and hang out in St. George's shopping center. <laughs> yeah. Go, go to some, hang out in my sister's cinema. house, in my dad's house, in my, my like bar's house, etc. Like, um, but whenever I have gone out around Harrow Town Centre, it does feel exactly the same. And you spot the little groups of youths hanging around and you're like, I used to be you. <laughs> 35 years ago, I was you. And um, yeah, but that's the thing about growing up in cities. Like the city never stops. The city never stops and mourns you when you move on. The city mm. just carries on and makes space for other people to come through. And then you go back and part of you feels a little bit of a loss because you're like, damn, I was that age once. But also part of you just realises that you're in a different time in your life and you kind of have to move on. Yeah. So in terms of moving on, you're now based in Bristol. Um, obviously, demogra demographics are completely different um, culturally as well between the two towns. But what are the key differences? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I am the Asian in Bristol. The token. <laughs> The token Asian of Bristol is yeah. your face in the local Bristol Gazette every week. You know, um, it's funny because Bristol is heralded as this multicultural city and it is very multicultural. It's just not very intercultural. So like the different cultures don't really mix. I remember once, not long after I'd moved to Bristol where we were walking from the town centre to our home and we decided to walk over this big hill through like the Studentville and we walked past this place called Tiffins I was like what's Tiffins and it there it said like vegetarian Gujarati food takeaway and I was like oh my god they do vegetarian Gujarati food and I went in and I walked in and it was like seeing Northwick Park hmm. I need immediately needed to go to the toilet. No, no. I saw the, I, I saw <laughs> the two, two people behind the counter and I immediately just relaxed because they were talking to each other in Gujarati and then they saw me and they and the guy just said, all right, chair, <laughs> because he was still in Gujarati mode and I just replied and in Gujarati and they were like, oh my God, you're Gujarati. And then we just started chatting and I would like, I just started going in there because I could talk Gujarati with them, and they were the only people I could talk oh, Gujarati nice. with. And did they, did they add? Did they add any? They used any extra lassan and dungri in the food. The, hold on, I'll get to the food in a second. But they used to run a bloody like pizza a go go type pizza place in Harrowtown Centre, no and way. then moved to Bristol, which was mad. And um, the food was amazing. They had like 
Kitri and Gudi and Kima and like home cooked, not like packet rotlies, home cooked rotlies. And the thing to kind of give you a little bit of an insight into my life, like I moved to Bristol nine months after my mum died. And I basically, up until the point I walked into Tiffin's, I'd been spending every waking hour trying to recreate my mum's food because I, I kind of was like, feeling a bit, you know, I was grieving for my mum and I was also feeling a bit uneasy being in a new city. And part of me was like, if I can make the kitchen smell like the kitchen in my home, in Harrow, it will feel like home. And so I was just constantly trying to cook all this stuff. And it tasted terrible because (laughs) A, my mum wasn't making it and B, I wasn't putting any salt in it. And the uh, mummy's secret ingredient, it turns out, was salt. So uh, discovering Tiffin's was just like a godsend for me at the right time. Do you think you'd ever move back to Harrow? I think the real question, uh, Jojo underscore B, is can I afford to move? (laughs) (laughs) No one can afford to live here. It's too expensive. It's ridiculous. Yeah. It's ridiculous. I think, yeah, once you move out of London, I think there's no chance of moving back unless um, something literally life-changing happens and you are suddenly rich, uh, which I'm not. But you're a celebrity author, surely. 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 (laughs) (laughs) You've got money in the bank now. Uh, the book I'm most <laughs> not famous money. for had 21 different writers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but, okay, fair enough. But look, okay, so you, you you mentioned briefly there about family. Um, now, obviously, from the communities that we're from, um, getting into the creative arts or wanting to get into the creative arts and and trying to put that across to our respective families, and that's what my potential <laughs> career path is might have been looked or probably frowned upon from uh, a number of our people uh, back then. Um, How receptive was your family about, you know, you taking up something that wasn't doctor, lawyer, accountant, etc.? And actually, do you believe it's changed now? Is it easier for the youngins now, do you think? Yeah, there's a lot to to unpack there. I guess... um... The first thing to say was uh, my parents basically had like seven years of me being a shit rapper to kind of get used to the idea that I wasn't (laughs) going to have a normal career. So by the time I was writing books, it was probably a godsend to them. I mean, like, 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 it was difficult. I didn't do the path best trodden. I was like one of the first people in my family to go to university, which is a lot of pressure. Uh, No, I was the first person in my family to go to university, which was a lot of pressure. They... They insisted I do a law degree. I did a law degree. Um, and then after that, I really wanted to get into the arts. But I kind of thought if I worked in charities and non-profits while I'm trying to get into, while I'm trying to be a world-famous rapper, then that will be a good thing to do. And then when I wrote my first novel, my mum died. And um, it, she, she died like the, the week it came out. And that was that was really, really hard for me because like, the whole time I'd been chasing her validation and chasing her acceptance. And the one thing that was going to give that to me uh, was taken away from me in that moment. And it was wildly unrealistic to even need that validation to kind of make me feel better about myself as a person. But I didn't get that. I was like in my twenties. Um, but the th- you know, the th- what's interesting is like in the last six months, I've received two honorary doctorates from university. So I'm now Dr. Nikola Shukla. Um, and, and both times I received them, I said to, because they were both at universities that had largely Asian uh, student bodies. I was like, 
I am now proof that you you can tell your parents I am proof you can become a doctor and pursue a career in the arts. <laughs> and I think, <laughs> but the thing is, I think things have changed. Like we didn't have, we didn't have representation growing up. We basically had like one person would come along because you could only have one because it was Highlander rules. There can be only one. Um, and as soon as that person fucked up, then everything went away. So like if um, they give the golden ticket of um, the t- the token Asian to, I don't know, Port, like, I, I don't know, like Amit Shah or whatever, and Amit Shah gets paid loads of money to write a book and that book sells 63 copies, we aren't getting another chance for a really long time. Yeah. And the, I think part of the work that I've been doing, especially around like the good immigrant and stuff, is just to flood the market with with people because the thing about representation, the thing about diversity, the thing about different industries is in order for them to be truly diverse, then we can't always be excellent. We have to also be good. We have to also be mediocre. We have to also sometimes be not very good at what we do and still get the same opportunities as all of the other white people who have opportunities despite not being very good or not selling enough you know yeah no one is no one is telling nick hornby when he has a book that doesn't do very well oh we're going to take this away from you but you know we fail once i fail once and that affects the whole community and that is a very real thing but you know there are just more people coming through and i think there's like a lot of people who are kind of hitting at the same time like you know the last four or five years of like Riz has kind of exploded having like built up a really amazing career to, you know, he's doing loads of amazing things. We've had like, you know, Himesh has broken out in the last year, Nish Kumar. Um, I guess the thing that I think about a lot and is my responsibility as a man of color to really, really think hard about is that all of the opportunities uh, and all of the successes are for, for brown men of color at the moment. And we need to do our part to, sh- to ensure that we're pulling you know, brown women of color, brown women through. Like we're not just like hogging the the platform all the time, and that is a real issue. And I am very, very aware of that. But I think that's you know part of the reason why I I spend a lot of my week, lot, a lot of time during the week, like mentoring writers and mentoring young women of color writers um, who want to, not young, like I'm not ageist, like if you know, uh, women of like I, I mentor a lot of women of color to to try and help. To bring them through not hopefully not in a patronizing way but in a way that kind of recognizes that i have opportunities because i'm a man and i need to kind of acknowledge that and bring people through well talking about women of color that are looking for opportunities jojo v <laughs> do you have a question <laughs> the opportunity to speak for us um no i was gonna ask we've spoken a number of times on this show about our community and sometimes the trouble that they have with um, supporting each other through things, whether that's through, you know, personal issues or just supporting people that are doing well and kind of helping, as you've been talking about, like helping other people through and helping, you know, bringing people along with them, but also just having general support from a brown audience. Do you feel like you've had a lot of support from the British Asian community? From the community, yeah. But like, I guess not from various institutions. I can't, I feel like I'm constantly, you know, I think what it is, is books, books are no longer considered worthy of everyday attention. So whenever I'm invited to do like a thing, either in Eastern Eye or Asian Network, it's always because they're doing a literature special. And I always say to them, 
Like there are a lot of amazing authors out at the moment. We're in a really good period of having some really like a good set of authors doing lots of different things. Don't make it special, make it ordinary, make it normalized. Because if you make it special, then we never get to just exist and be normal. We always have to, like, it's always at this sort of rate of expectation of of excelling. And I think that is a problem. I think that the kind of the cultural impact of books has kind of gone down. And yet, like, brown writers have written some of the most compelling books have ever been written like Arundhati Roy God of Small Things uh Vikram Seth a suitable boy Salman Rushdie and so on and so forth like we have contributed to the canon of Brit of international literature in incredible ways and yet books are treated like they are something special and highbrow and intellectual when you know we've got amazing crime writers we've got amazing YA writers and children's book writers and and so I find that that support could be better and and also the other thing that i find is um a lot of publishers don't know how to take books to asian audiences and tell them mm. that they exist because there are so few avenues and um i would just really really love for there to be like an amazing pr company that kind of went okay this is how we are going to take all of the amazing South Asian art that is happening in Britain and is usually has largely white audiences and we're going to work out a way of like bringing it to brown audiences because like a lot of them just don't hear about stuff and that's a real tragedy you know Hmm. you think that's because they choose not to engage in the arts in general because we're not really encouraged to at home personally I love reading fiction and I grew up loving fiction but that came because my brother loved to do that but he wasn't ever encouraged to do it he just did it off his own back and then he encouraged me to do that he used to take me to the library when I was little so do you think that if you don't have that encouragement at home that you're not necessarily going to go out seeking that kind of voice in books or in in anything so any kind of type of art whether that's the kind of visual arts or kind of tv or film do you think that that's because there's a lack of encouragement and then that results in a lack of support for people who do manage to break through in those in those art forms yeah i do i but i think i think that basically um the way the way we are taught to read in schools makes reading boring like the books that we're we're expected to study makes reading boring and double if you doubly if you're a person of color because like there's no brown people you're just studying hamlet and um bronte sisters and like they're the great books but like you know, at critical points in our life when we're we're young, we need to see it. We need to see ourselves, and so we are we are taught to not read for pleasure. And I think that reading for pleasure is something that you know, regardless of whether you're British Asian or British South South Asian or not, like is something that we could all do better um, culturally to kind of promote the idea of reading for pleasure a, a lot more. Um, but when you think like specifically of like south asian communities i think that the i think that because we are kind of on the back foot a little bit because we have you know we have grown up with families who have kind of pushed us towards more professional careers and i and i literally do think that the reason that we've been pushed towards those professional careers because our parents came over in the 60s and 70s and they looked on bookshelves and they looked on tv screens and they're like if you want a job if you want to work if you want to earn money like 
I'm looking at this bookshelf and I can't see uh, Nikesh Shukla. I'm looking on TV mm. screen and I can only see like browned up English people playing us and doing silly accents. Like, do you want to make a living? And I, you know, it's, it's different. It, it would have been different if we'd had that representation, I think. And so uh, in terms of like encouraging people to engage with the arts more, I, th- I do think it's, our, I do think it's our responsibility in the like media outlets we do have to kind of push those art forms out more like I really remember like there was I was certainly so much more awareness of what was going on within the community when say when Asian Network had an art show when Nikki Bether used to present the art show every weekday from like two to three four or whatever it was I can't remember the time and this doesn't exist anymore because we don't value it in the same way and the thing is if our, our media institutions don't value what is happening and they kind of pigeonhole it into like here's our diversity special on books or what have you then that's where the well that's where that content gets shunted and people don't see it as normal and books uh, books aren't special like i really get irritated when someone someone says i read like it's a personality trait Hmm. Um, (laughs) like reading isn't special reading's amazing and reading has given me so much um, in my life and it's it's taught me so much and it's um, made me think and view the world in in different in different ways that I would never have considered before and that's amazing but it's not special books are accessible to ev- everyone you know out of ev- more than more than like movies more than television more than um, more than music because we have libraries and libraries are free mm-hmm. and if there's something that British Asians love it's free shit. So <laughs> go to your library. Like they are there. If we don't use them, they will die. And the thing, the thing about libraries is I really value like, like I don't ever have to buy a book ever again because I'm lucky. I'm privileged because I, I, I'm an author who publishers want to send books to. And that means I've never sport for choice. I'm sitting next to 12 books that have been sent to me in the last two weeks. I'll probably read four of them and the others the others I'll give away. And that's amazing that mm. I have that privilege. But the reason I support libraries is because there are people who aren't as privileged as me. And libraries offer like a community space, but they also offer free books. They offer access to free books. And, um, you know, I am the way I am because my mum loved Mills and Boone books and she would go to the library every two weeks and she always took me and my sister with her and we were always given free reign. And while I was given free reign, I strayed from the kids section into the adult section. And I got the Buddha of Suburbia out by Honey of Qureshi. And my mum didn't even know that I'd got that book out. And I read it way before I was probably mature <laughs> enough to read it. And it changed my life. But I was there because my mum normalised the library for me. She didn't make it special. She didn't make it like a thing that I should hide and be bullied about. She was just like, we go to the library. And that's that amazing support your local libraries people and when we come back on the other side we will continue talking to nika shukla including what life is like for him in this current lockdown see you on the other side people to the native immigrants i'm swami barakas and i'm jojo b and we are joined by author extraordinaire nikesh shukla 
Oh, hi. Yeah, hi. <laughs> <laughs> See, like, you don't do too many of these, it feels like. And that's probably the reason why, of, <laughs> you know, apprehension. But you're in, you're in familiar company here. Treat this as your home. We're all friends here. <laughs> We're all friends here. Yeah, exactly. I mean, what, what, I also what, know what, the, uh, what the viewers can't see is in our separate abodes, we we're all sitting cross-legged on the floor. <laughs> we're, that's exactly how we're sat. Yep. And I, I've got like um, like obstacles of children's toys we're around surrounded me. by toys. I've got a bad knee because I did some exercise this morning. Yeah. Um, Box fit. Can't feel my arms. And my knee hurts. Just aging it, love. It is. But it's lockdown exercise. Lockdown indeed. Right, so... I read your last book, The Boxer. Really, really great book. Um, if you're a young adult out there right now, please, I encourage you to read this. It's an awesome book and it's very topical about a lot of the things that are happening in the UK, um, aside of obviously right now with the current pandemic. But um, you, men you, know, you mentioned in social media that it actually stemmed from a real life um, racially motivated attack. Um, like... So so in terms of your books, how how much of your material is autobiographical, um, and how much of it is drawn from people you know and experience you've heard from elsewhere? I mean, for every author, every book is autobiographical in some way because every book starts from an emotional truth. Every book yeah. starts with a question that you want to either ask of the world or of yourself, and so everything I write is autobiographical because it's what I'm concerned with at the time. Now, what actually happens in, in those books might, well, will all, you know, be a mixture of stuff that's made up and stuff that is narratively interesting and, you know, characters who are inspired by people or, uh, like, like versions of different people in my life, but, and they will never, never do things like how it actually happened because life is much more boring than fiction but everything I do starts from an emotional truth in my life because I can only really write from the things that I'm concerned about the things that I'm interested in and yeah the boxer is like a really good example of that because I wasn't attacked on a train but I very nearly was mm. and CCTV stopped me being attacked for for um, racially motivated reasons and part of my like novelist brain just kind of went well what would have happened if I had been attacked and I was quite traumatized by the incident and I kept thinking I would have been doubly traumatized or triply or quadruply traumatized if I'd actually been punched yeah. and and it, I ended up taking up boxing and I wanted to, and I'd been saying to my my editor, my my teen fiction editor, all this time that I wanted to, because I write teen fiction. I, what I like to do is I like to, to pick a genre, and talk about a contemporary issue using genre. So like I I wrote a thriller, like a an all out brilliant fast paced thriller about gentrification for Run Riot, and for for and I wanted to write a book that was about mental health and the trauma of a racist attack like we talk about racism in such like um unrealistic terms at the moment you know people debating what what counts as racism and people sort of going talk, going on and on and on about how the word racist is now meaningless and how you know you're the real racist for seeing race in the first place and actually i wanted what i wanted to do was go have you ever been racially abused 
this is what it, like well, this is what happens to your head when it becomes yeah. when you become racially abused. And I was thinking, how am I going to do that in a way that's interesting to teenagers? Because I want it, you know, I write to engage young young brown boys in reading because I want them to see themselves, and if they can see themselves, they can they can feel empowered to kind of move forward. And I was like, well, how am I going to write about the trauma of racist incident? And then I was like, oh, but I've taken up boxing. Why don't I write about a boxing match? And then so it's it's literally like has all the conventions of a sports thriller like Rocky or Warrior or any of those films that you've like seen and you know the plot points well. Um, yeah. But it's about racism. It's about the trauma of racist attack, just talk, using boxing to kind of talk about it. Are there any characters that you would say, or is there one particular character that you would say is the closest to you as a person? From all the books that you've written? Yeah. I mean, bits of me and bits of the people around me kind of go into everyone. Like, my first novel was about shit rappers. <laughs> and the main character <laughs> were kind of... We come full had circle. Same, had the same self-delusion that I had when I was a shit rapper. <laughs> The, sec- the second novel is about a guy who spends too much time on the internet while he's grieving for a family member. And that part of that was me. Like, they all evolved from, like, inquiries I had about myself. Sonny in The Boxer is me. Um, the narrator in my my literary essay in The Good Immigrant that also became the narrative voice in um, my forthcoming mem- parenting memoir, Brown Baby, is a version of me that is concerned about raising children. Like, they're all versions of me. They're all, like, come from... That's the thing about emotional truth, because uh, that emotional truth, truth is the thing that we all kind of get hooked by, because in that emotional truth, there's something universal there's, that's in with it, within all of us. And so... I just try and be honest to that emotional truth. And and because that emotional truth is usually born out of something that's happening in my own life and, you know, that my author brain is exponentially trying to interrogate it, you know. So, yeah, they're, they're all versions of me or parts of me or things things I've thought about or positions I've taken in my life, all of them. But is there any one of them which you said is the closest to you as a person, as this is legitimately straight Nika Shukla. Yeah, so I've written a memoir um, where a dad raises his child and is worried about his child uh, and worried about his abilities as a parent. And the character is Nika Shukla and the author is Nika Shukla. Big up, big up. <laughs> but, it's, but it's a memoir, so it's a bit of a dodge. I mean, I don't know, man. I think... Sonny in the boxer is probably emotionally the closest to me that I've ever yeah. written, but you know, still he's still like not me. Yeah. He's he's less he's less annoying than I am, and I'm, he he is quite annoying. That, yeah, that's saying something. <laughs> he make he like I purposefully made him make annoying choices in the book because you know just because you're writing teenage uh, fiction aimed at teenagers, it doesn't mean you should ever shy away from the fact that teenagers make fucking stupid choices sometimes. i actually did mention that in our review of the boxer <laughs> on the podcast in that um i because I, I, there was so much of him that I, I really like resonated with and really you know wanted to support him but there were also parts of him that i was just like oh, for f-, you know just cringeworthy decision making and you just on the other side of the book being like what the fuck are you doing stop being so fucking stupid and i guess that's all part of the yeah, makeup of a teenager yeah, the thing is, like, narratively, why would he fight for kids? Yeah. Why would he fight to retain that friendship? But 
if you were a teenager, if you were a lonely teenager who didn't have any friends and that one person showed you love and respect, you'd kind of feel like you needed to fight for that relationship, yeah. right? Yeah. And we've all been that teenager with any, shit friends. It may not make any sense, yeah, but, you know, he's a teenager. He's still learning stuff about himself. And actually, the thing that he needs to learn about himself is that he's a fallible human being and he accepts himself. But he's not gonna he's not gonna get to that point without making some stupid choices yeah, in the main, in the meantime, you know. He's a teenager. Teenagers do dumb shit. <laughs> do you find it like emotionally exhausting putting yourself so much of yourself or so much of your experiences into your characters when you're writing your books? So are you kind of like are you like half dead by the end of it because you put so much of yourself into there? Yeah, I am I am when I'm writing. But the thing about the thing about writing is where that that first draft is so raw and it's so close to you and it's so close to the bone and it's so close to everything you've ever thought. And then you edit it and it gets slightly further away. And then you edit mm-hmm. it and it gets slightly further away. And then your agent sees it and they make you make some changes and it gets slightly further away. And then your editor gets it and they it gets slightly further away. And then it has a cover. And it suddenly feels like a thing. It feels like a book. It doesn't feel like a collection of your thoughts on a Word document anymore. It feels like a book. And then it comes out. And the moment it comes out, it doesn't belong to you anymore. And so, but but that process takes like two years. It takes three years. It takes like a year. And so like from the moment of writing the first, from from the moment you finish the first draft, you're saying goodbye to it. And you're getting further and further away from it that you look back on it and you go, I'm not that person anymore. I've resolved whatever I needed to resolve in in writing it. And it now belongs to readers. And the thing is, readers will always like read stuff into your books that you haven't necessarily put there or they'll read a version of it that they wish you'd written um, or they'll just see stuff that you didn't acknowledge at the time. And, the, you know, Oscar Wilde said, novels are never finished, they're only ever abandoned. And I think that's because at some point, sorry, that was an audible burp. <laughs> Oscar, don't say Oscar you don't keep Wilde. it raw here with the native immigrants. <laughs> yeah, exclusive. <laughs> um, I, I will leave... I'll leave the choice to you guys whether you keep that in. That or is not. blatantly staying in there. In your hand, I'm. I am putting my trust. In um, but yeah, Oscar Wilde said, "A book is never finished; it's only ever abandoned." And so, um, the point at which it becomes abandoned, it doesn't belong to you anymore. So yeah, it is exhausting initially, but you're constantly getting further and further away from it. So you you mentioned Brown Baby, um, which is now going to be coming out next year. Um, I know, obviously, because of the current situation it had to be it had to be um moved further back in terms of its release date um without giving too much away what can you tell us about this book um the book is basically a series of conversations that i've had with my daughter she's like five and a half now so a series of conversations i've had with her where i've tried to explain the world to her and I've realized that as a parent, you're walking a tight, as a parent of color, raising a child of color. She's mixed race, but she's a child of color. She will always be racialized as brown. Um, you know, as a parent of color, raising a child of color, um, I have a responsibility to her to have difficult conversations with her, 
to be honest with her about the world, to not project my own emotional baggage onto her and to make her see the world for what it is, but also to raise her with joy. And that's a a humongous Mm. responsibility and it's scary. And I don't always get things right. Quite often I get things wrong. And the book is basically me presenting to you, the reader, how I had six or seven very, very difficult conversations with my kid, ranging from skin colour to grief to um, to gender to climate catastrophe um, to my own mental health issues. And the book, each chapter kind of starts with a conversation that we have and it sort of arrives at a point at which I pause because I don't know what I'm going to say and then the rest of the chapter happens and then we kind of then end with the resolution and um, like how I then try and fill my kid with joy. So yeah, that's pretty much what it is. It's it's a memoir about race, parenting and home, basically. Awesome. Look look forward to reading it. I uh, hope we get a copy our end for us to review our site. Uh, your names are on the, the early proof list, which goes out, I think it gets on out. And then next we made the oh, cut. Wow. We made the Yay. cut. Also, it might be handy for us in the future in the future, having those conversations with our own little one. Oh, absolutely. Um, we're all stuck at home at the moment with the, the pandemic, and um, we've all been struggling with our own kind of levels of motivation, shall we see, so we say, with kind of, you know, just from washing the dishes to actually getting some work done to, you know, doing anything, basically, finding that motivation. How are you finding working during this kind of climate, this situation, are you finding that because you're stuck at home, you're being more creative and more productive or has it gone the opposite way? Uh, no, because my kids are here and they're an- annoying. <laughs> That's the correct answer. <laughs> no, I mean, it's hard. Um, yeah, yeah, it is hard because it's really hard to be creative. Like I, I'm a firm believer in boundaries for myself. Like I don't like everything being in one place so i'm really lucky so i live in bristol i'm really lucky because um an arts organization gifted me free uh free workspace so i have a desk in the center of bristol that i go to to work and i love it i love being able to leave the house and go somewhere and work i you know i can't work in silence i have to have noise around me i have to have people around me because i'm a writer and part of my job as a writer is is to observe humanity and i can't do that at home Mm. by myself um i also don't like my gym being in my house and i also don't like my social time being in my house and i also don't like um just so so i i found that the like the re rezoning of my life so that everything happens in this one space is re- it has been really difficult for me and it's hard to be creative because i think there's a there's so much pressure on loads of people who are like oh we've been gifted this time to like just be sit alone with our thoughts and we're just going to write this amazing novel and you know what if you need to stare out stare out of the window and let a half-eaten apple brown in your hand that is mm. okay like you don't have to produce anything you know, there is a collective grief going on because people are dying. You know, this is happening to everyone. There is a collective grief and we haven't unpacked what that means because we're still understanding that it means different things to different people. I I don't know about you guys, but I've had people in my circle die 
and I can't grieve them and their death doesn't feel real to me yet because I haven't physically experienced their death yet. I've experienced their death through Skype and through text messages and through like Zoom funerals and stuff, but I haven't viscerally been in the same space as my family grieving and crying and like having emotions collectively. And so and all of that kind of messes with your head and so like I've been doing little projects here and there I've been like tinkering with the, an idea for a new novel I've been working on a couple of like pre-existing projects but like none of it feels real and none of it feels worth it because I don't know what it, what this pandemic is going to do so basically like imagine you were writing a novel and then Thanos snapped his fingers and you were one of the people who 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 didn't get um who didn't go to dust yeah. how would you then go back to that novel yeah so yeah. true and i'm not i'm not comparing the coronavirus to the thanos snap but what i'm trying to say is like we don't that was a pretty clear-cut thing that happened and people probably were able to re-evaluate what they were going to do but we don't know what is happening with this and so like i don't know what the world's going to look like because there is no, no new normal that we can return to you know, we can't just press unpause and go back to how the, how things were the way they were because, like, the world wasn't just wasn't fit for yeah. purpose that way. So I don't know what that means for fiction. I don't know what that means for nonfiction. I don't know what that means for the way I see the world. And so, like, I I feel like I'm just sort of keeping myself busy while we all figure shit out. And so it's really hard to be creative. And I don't think anyone listening to this should put pressure on themselves to be creative. You don't have to write an amazing novel just because you've got you've been furloughed from work. Just be with your own feelings. That's okay. So, what what would be the the first thing that you'd want to do once this all eventually settles down? Go and give my sister a hug. You, there's a couple of things. I re, you know, there's four things, right? One, I want to give my sister and my boy Inua Elms a big hug. Two, I need to see the sea (laughs) because there's something calming about the sea. Three, Swami Brackus, Jojo B, I need some fried chicken. (laughs) (laughs) I really need popcorn chicken. (laughs) Popcorn chicken i i don't know i I just love it and number four is just you know i just want to sit in a busy cafe and just watch people i just i really you know as a writer one of the one of my jobs as i said was is to kind of observe humanity and one of the things i miss is like sitting in busy places and just watching people and seeing how they interact um because so much of that goes into my work so uh, those four things are what what I want to do when lockdown is over. Hug Inua and Nishma, eat fried chicken, see the sea, sit in a busy cafe. Yeah, I think that akin to a lot of what people would have responded with, with the same, it's being around their close ones uh, and just eating loads of crap. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I know I'm saying that to a card-carrying chili paneer. Absolutely. I'm vegetarian, I, but, I'm, you know, I'm struggling, fried mate. chicken is delicious. I'm this sorry. is This is real cold turkey for me uh, Jojo B did rustle up some paneer for me the other week but as amazing as it was it's not that dirty stuff that you get from the local restaurants no because I always try and make it healthy exactly <laughs> I, I know I know that when the day that Club 2001 opens yes you're going to be you're gonna just be hook there. that shit up to my veins basically <laughs>
You know, you know, I found a really good uh, chili paneer recipe. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, is there's this uh, food writer called Mira Soda. Mm. I don't know. If I've got her book. She's amazing. Her cookery books are so easy, and they're also so homespun as well. And she's got she's got three books. So the first book is like it's called Made in India, and it's all her family's like Ugandan Gujarati recipes. And it's got a chili paneer in there that's really delicious. And then her second book is called Fresh India, and it's only vegetarian. And her third book explores um, the East, so like the whole of Asia, but a mixture of vegetarian and vegan recipes. And all of them are really easy. And one of the things I really hate in cookery books is when you open the cookery book and you're like, oh, well, if I want to cook this, I've got to buy absolutely everything brand new. Mm. Whereas with her... If you've got a basic spice tin and you've got like nutmeg and garam masala and dana jeera and haldi and all the rest of it, you can make pretty much everything in those books. Yeah, Jojo's got one of them. I've got Fresh India. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. Made in India's got a really good uh, chili paneer recipe. Send it to me. <laughs> yes, please. Uh, or, or if you, you know, like I said, this is a great time. Book. This is a yeah. great time to rustle this stuff up yourself. So if you ever do decide to indulge in the kitchen and and make uh la la, la shukla paneer then uh you know post us some post us some yeah because <laughs> yeah, we can't come around unfortunately <laughs> um like so one of our early shows uh in season three as part of lockdown season we looked at what would be our worst case scenarios being stuck at home so we're gonna ask you the questions that we asked ourselves during that particular episode in this current pandemic, in lockdown, what would be the worst snack that you could be left with? <laughs> the worst snack. If the, on, if the only thing left in the house was basically all of the electrics had gone so I couldn't use the toaster and the only thing that was left was sliced white bread. Thank you. No, you put I some marge or some no. butter on that and no. it's good stuff. White oh. bread. No, it has, no. To be seed, it has to be at least seeded. At least seeded. No, you're seeded. wrong. As a person who's gluten-free and can no longer eat good white bread, you, lot, you don't know how lucky no, you are. Bruv. It's legitimately the blandest choice. <laughs> no. Yeah. Just not it doing is it right. the blandest thing they on the even, menu. Yeah, they even had it in the Goodness Gracious Me sketch where, he's, where they said just like 10 bread white rolls. <laughs> or it was. So it is legitimately the blandest thing you could have. So yeah, I'm, I'm with you there, brother. I'm with you there. Uh, so, okay. So also in that same context, if you only had one DVD of one film without any streaming service or any television, you had one disc of the worst film that you could be left with what would the that film be worst film the worst film oh my god uh, everyone has that worst worst film and not like a guilty pleasure like literally a film that makes you want to gouge your eyes out yeah <laughs> oh god i think it would have to be a film that was really up its own ass um god what's the film anything about really... michael bay then basically no, sorry? Michael Bay films are so entertaining. <laughs> oh, please, debatable. Which film, sorry? I said anything by Michael Bay then, in terms of it being self-indulgent. Yeah, like Transformers 3 would be pretty bad. But like, no, I'm I'm trying to think of like, what's a film? I, no, I know what it'd be. It'll be like, it'll be a musical, like Les Miserables. <gasps> 
God, I hate that film. Yeah, it was it was pretty terrible. It took us three days to watch that film because we just couldn't bear sitting, sitting down and watching it in one. But it go. did actually feel like it was a three day long film yes, as well at the same did. time. <laughs> or 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 the Wolverine Origins film. No, that, that was, was pretty. Dark. Oh, that was really that was, good. Well, in terms of because Logan was so magnificent, but if you think the preceding film as part of that lineage was Wolverine Origins, when, when it was all Japan, it oh, was pretty. Okay, bad. I got that confused. No, with Logan. No, Logan was no, really was good. Idiot. I'm, to, I'm not talking about um, the Wolverine. I'm talking about X Men Origins Wolverine, where Ryan Reynolds plays Deadpool, but like a shit Deadpool, so yes. shit that he has to <sighs> kill him off in Deadpool too. Oh, the, yeah, the original original Wolverine and stuff. Gambit was in that as well, wasn't it, I think? Yeah, it was really bad. Uh, okay, fine. All right. And then if you had one album and it was just one disc and you had only like a CD player to play it with, with nothing else in your whole house and you had to listen to it, what would that be? Like a Peppa Pig audiobook. <laughs> oh, my God. That's just... It's not even a. It's not even a joke, really. That's, that's the realities of life currently. I'd say <laughs> we've been listening to the same nursery rhyme Spotify list all yeah, day. Baby long. club, baby club nursery rhymes is the legitimate bane of my current life. It's also the savior of our lives because the only that's thing true. that keeps our child happy. Well, that and Smith and Wesson's Soundboy Burial, which is his favorite song in the world. <laughs> yes, from day one. From day one. Oh, but okay, so now, because we've got you on here. I think we have to have a literary choice as well. Now, you could be like, you know, burning a few bridges with some of your author friends. But if there was one book that you would just be like, fuck me, do I have to read this shit again? What would that book be? Um, Boris Johnson wrote a thriller called 72 Virgins. No. That was... I'm, 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 just, wait, 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 you, wait, you, you, you read a book by Boris Johnson called 72 Virgins. No, forget that. You read a book <laughs> authored by Boris Johnson. I can't even delete this whole interview. I've got to put it out now because it's so late in the day. Uh, so, so you, you disappoint me, Nikesh Shukla. When I was in, when I was in Kenya, um, no, so, so yeah, when I was in Kenya and I was in a, we were staying in a guest house when we were visiting somewhere and it was like one of those places where loads of travelers go and they leave books and stuff and i was ill and so everyone i was with kind of went off to do what they were doing and i was staying in the hotel room and i read a collection because i knew he was just about to become mayor or he was already mayor or something and i read a collection of his um his telegraph columns and i was like my god this guy is so racist anyway um so I've read two of his books is what I'm trying to say, but there's there's a brilliant, hilarious political podcast called Trash Future. And um, every now and then they basically do a read along where they basically snark at um, the bad literature of awful racist politicians. And they, they always, for some reason, get my boy Nish Kumar in with them to snark along with them. And they did um, Boris Johnson's thriller, 72 Virgins. And I listened to like, 10 minutes of the first episode and I was like I have to read this before I listen to this because it was so funny it was such a funny snarky episode that I was part of me was like I can only really enjoy the snark fully if I read the book so I forced myself <laughs> to read the book and it is, ter- it is as terrible as you would expect but it made the listening of a podcast in the aftermath of a Tory landslide that made me feel so depressed. It just made me feel slightly better that 
at the very least, I was a better writer than Boris fucking Johnson. <laughs> you redeemed yourself very late on in the process, but well done. <laughs> well done. Um, right, we're going to start to close this one up, but if you can give us some recommendations from books by BAME authors, what would they currently be? Yeah, so um, Nikita Lawani, um, who wrote The Amazing Gifted, has just had a new novel come out on like the 1st of April, so like right in the middle of lockdown, um, and it hasn't had the kind of the attention it deserves because of lockdown. It's basically a thriller about illegal immigration. It's amazing. Um, it's a book by Avni Doshi coming out in July called Burnt Sugar that is just the best mother-daughter like fucked up mother daughter relationship novel that you'll read in a while. One of my favorite books of recent years is a graphic memoir by Mira Jacob um, called Good Talk, which is basically a series of um, conversations that she has with her her kid about Trump and about um, about race. And it kind of um, my book Brown Baby is kind of in conversation with it, like it's kind of like a reply, like a call and answer response to that book but I, I just i love that book so much um so i'm just scanning bookshelves um for amazing bame writers um there's a there's a book by Bragya agarwal called sway if you're into non-fiction uh she's just written a brilliant book about not unconscious bias that I, I think is really readable and really interesting um at the moment and finally well i say finally but i can't actually see anything I'm just, sorry i'm scanning i'm scanning my bookshelves i'm surrounded by books um so my friend anushka shankar name drop um she's just sent me a new biography of her dad ravi shankar uh, called indian son the life and music of ravi shankar by oliver krask oh wow and if the dude's daughter is sending you a book about her dad and saying this is pretty good it's pretty good. Um, yeah. I've, I've started reading it. It's a really brilliant, dense look at Ravi Shankar's life and his his mastery of his craft. And if there's one thing that we as people of colour, we as brown people never get to talk about is craft. And it's some, one thing we never get to celebrate is craft and how good we are at the stuff that we do. And so it's a really nice reading a book that really celebrates how amazing he was. So I've been really enjoying reading that as well. Fantastic. Well... Mr. Nikas Shukla, thank you so much for joining us here on The Native Immigrants, our, officially our very first guest on the show, which is um, a massive honour for us and for you, obviously. Um, but <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. You're welcome, seriously. No, no, no. You're welcome. No, 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 here if you are listening to this and you are a writer and you have an instagram account every monday at 8 p.m gmt uh the poet nikita gill and i do an instagram live writers clinic for half an hour Amazing. so from 8 to 8 30 we just do a little writers clinic where we we've done like character motivation uh dialogue we 
today we did one about how to find a literary agent. Next week we're doing one about what happens um, to your book once you've signed your book contract and it's going to get published. So like if you're a writer looking for inspiration or just like a little peek behind the curtain, then just join us on Instagram Live. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for everything you do in terms of representing our communities in the literature world. Uh, there's very few people that's championing the BAME author. And I hope you've inspired enough of our next generation of writers to come through because that's what we want. We want more representation across all our different uh, arts and creative platforms. And we hope that you continue to shine in everything you do going forward. Brown Baby is out next year, 2021. So make sure you all go out and support that book when it does and all of Nika Shukla's future writings. Thank you so much, Nikesh. Bye. Thank you, guys. Love you. Much love, much love to you. Thank you. So from me, Swami Barakas. And me, Jojo B. We're off and we'll catch you all again next week, people. Peace. Ta-ta.